To ship, of course. Welcome to the Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's with me the week before Thanksgiving? Hi, it's DJ Saramella at eSaramella on Twitter. Uh, this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. How's it going, gents? Good. Pretty awesome. You ready for uh, stuff you're Face with food day. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so for episode 31, we're going to be sitting down with some people from Atlassian. We're going to talk about some of the stuff that they're doing in the DevOps space and, of course, uh, some of the unique challenges that they deal with with the customers that they have. And we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty details about what's going on in, in that space. They're known for their enterprise products, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But, of course, first up, news and views. So reInvent happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, EJ, you went. Yeah, it was it was pretty pretty amazing. Uh, there were all the sessions. They they ranked them like college. So it was like a 101, 201, 300, oh, nice. 400 level classes. So you knew what you were getting into when you got into the different sessions. Oh, that's kind of nice, yeah. One of the big things, uh, one of the big announcements they made was the Amazon Cloud Trail, uh, which allows you to capture all the API activity. I'm sure a lot of people have been looking for that functionality. EJ, you were there for that specific announcement, and then also you were mentioning that uh, it seems like that was something that Netflix's edit tool do as well or does? Yeah, it's, it seems like, I don't want to call it duplication or copy. I don't know who was first. Obviously, Netflix was first re- releasing the GitHub project, but uh, yeah, so I think it's pretty awesome because a lot of people, us included, rolled our own, and now it seems like there's one really nice comprehensive way of capturing all this stuff, and it effectively dumps, from what I understand, all your, once you sign up and turn on the service, uh, it dumps all your information to an S3 bucket. Uh, and leaves it there for you to analyze or examine. Audit. Yeah, audit. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I knew I know from some other presentations that the guys behind Edda were going to be providing a front end to it, and I'm curious uh, where this goes with the Amazon uh, portion of this. But right now, just being able to see this is pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's one of the big things in the like people always talk about in the cloud is is being able to the security aspect and be able to do audit. Uh, traces. It'll be interesting, you know, what, what you're saying about Edit. It'll be interesting if if they end up making the front end compatible with like Amazon's back end. So you can, if you had like an Edit data store, you can still browse that data, but then you could also plug it into the new Amazon thing uh, and still get the nice, pretty front end. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what their plans for that, if any, are moving forward. Maybe we'll have to get Justin and Gareth on the line and ask them at some point. So I think the only other sort of uh, real exciting thing that we saw was the announcement of Postgres for RDS. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. But I'd, I'd say that's awesome, but caution people that <laughs> the, the current three, the, the three offerings prior to that is uh, MySQL, uh, some Oracle variant, and Microsoft SQL Server. And these guys, so these first three... out the product line, right? I mean, those Yeah. Are... It, well, these three offered single-click, like, backups, multi-AZ and read-only replicas. And from what I understand for the Postgres one, it is very limited with regard to these things. So it's not at parity with the rest of them. So, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm kind of curious what they're offering on the Postgres side, you know, especially with some of the, the maybe the backup and replication because the tooling on that side of the house is uh, a little interesting. So we'll be curious to see if they're using stuff like Sloney or maybe they've written their own in-house type tools. Um, it's been a while since I've done anything with, with Postgres, but yeah, yeah. Most, most of the big shops that I 
my now probably wouldn't really be too interested in running Postgres RDS. Well, it's funny, right? Because I, I might be curious to know if anybody's using like Oracle or SQL Server on the Amazon side, because it seems like a lot of startups and smaller shops use MySQL, so that makes sense that you'd run that in the cloud and there'd be an offering for that. But it seems like the people like, like that would be using the bigger databases have unique requirements. I mean, I remember at uh, Velocity New York, there was somebody who uh, had a consulting firm that gave a talk about, like he'd been doing MySQL consulting for like ever, but his consulting firm had really taken off with all of the kind of weird hoops you have to jump through with RDS. And it's not that his position was in RDS is bad, it's just a lot of the standard things that you learn for like dump and restore and all those kind of things, you have to kind of translate them to have them work under RDS. There's a little kind of translation layer in terms of like if you just dump RDS, it doesn't work the way you'd expect if you were just dumping a MySQL database or something like that. So that was my only real experience with that. It was an interesting uh, talk to hear because to Yusuf, to your point, I think we all kind of assume all the database stuff is is often local, right? And so it's interesting to just see them sort of cloudize that that space. This is another sort of frequent discussion point at reInvent was a, a lot of people coming up, a lot of startups happening, worry too much about how do I support RabbitMQ or how do I run my own Postgres server in the cloud? And tons of companies like SmugMug and StackDriver, a lot of these guys, they just said, focus on the product and leverage the AWS tool set. And you may pay a little bit more up front, but focus on your tooling. So I, I find it's, yeah, sure, the big shops, they're going to run their own stuff, right? They're going to have their own kernel tweaks to run these databases on, sure. But I think most people getting into it or starting a, a product or you know running a startup, they're not going to bother. They're, they're going to jump on this and just take write it for all it's worth. Oh, sure. No, I agree. I, I'd just be curious. You see most people, unless they're maybe .NET shops. And they oh, you're talking SQL. about the Oracle and the, the SQL Server. Offering. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, I'd put that out to listeners. Like, if be curious to hear from you and your experiences, tweet us at Chip Show Podcast. If you're using something other than MySQL in RDS, be curious uh, if your experience have been good, bad, indifferent, or, or what have you. Next up, we have an article about, uh, we talked about Microsoft and SAC ranking a couple episodes ago. It uh, looks like about a couple weeks ago now, they announced the a memo to uh, all of Microsoft about the elimination of stack ranking. We'll link to the memo in the show notes. But the, it's interesting, they're talking about the one Microsoft strategy. And as we talked about in the previous news and views, doing stack ranking uh, is not quite the way to uh, have a kind of cohesive uh, people organization. The other interesting tidbit of this in the same article, they mentioned that Yahoo is actually starting to do stack ranking. The interesting tidbit about that is uh, officially Yahoo's not doing stack ranking, but there's apparently an internal message board within Yahoo that got leaked to uh, All Things D, where they're basically uh, saying that managers were pressured to basically do stack ranking to, to uh, mark people as occasionally missing or missing, even if that wasn't the case. Isn't it effectively like t-shirt sizing your staff? Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's basically bell curve. So uh, the example actually in the article that, that uh, we'll link to gives is like if you could go back, if you had a time machine, you could go back and get all these engineers and they were like Isaac Newton, Einstein, Murray Curie, bring them and solve your problem and your manager comes to you and says, well, you have to give someone excellent, someone good and someone mediocre rating. And it's like, no, they were all great. And basically the bell curve of somebody has to be occasionally misses their goals or misses their goals, even though that wasn't the case. So what I actually find more interesting is that Microsoft sort of, uh, at least for a long time, unapologetically did stack ranking. I mean, it's just that's the way it was. Whereas uh, it, it, it is not surprising to me that Yahoo would say, oh, we're not doing that. But the kind of mum is the word within the management reporting structure is they are doing that. Just because there's been a lot of like, you can't work from home no matter what. 
anymore which I feel like a lot of very black and white we're changing the organization and that's the way it is this comes as very little surprise to me uh, it's pr- depressing if you work at Yahoo but uh, it doesn't come as much of a surprise well I, I find this type of stuff the you know motivational I mean I'm sure they have there are reasons for wanting to do this, but I, yeah. I don't know. Be curious to see if there's a uh, a better way of kind of motivating your people to to do better. Well, I think there is a better way, but it's not stacked ranking. I think that's sure. Yeah. Established. And in fact, I think the article talks about a study that they a business professor that somewhere did, where they basically said places that use stack ranking don't do as well, and the metrics they use were like, do you use stack ranking? And then they were looking at stock market metrics, and it's like your company just doesn't do as well. But, again, not surprising. On that note, actually, there was an article uh, in uh, Fast Company about uh, offices for all, why open office layouts are bad for employees, bosses, and productivity. I'm glad to see that Fast Company is actually doing a treatment of this. I think this has been, you know, any knowledge worker has been saying this for years and years and years, and yet you still see companies touting, you know, we have an open collaborative environment. Uh, And there's actually a lot of, you know, brain research that talks about getting into flow and how uh, open spaces basically ruin that. I was reading the article, and uh, you definitely should go take a look. It's, it's uh, part one of a two-part series, because there's a lot of really good one-liners in there. He, he talks about that he got interrupted while he was writing the article, and he was like, uh, it took me this many minutes to get back into flow and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was very interesting. But I was thinking back to, speaking of Microsoft, one of the big things that they always talked about is they everyone got an office back in the day. They were one of the companies that believed in that early on, that all their developers should get an office. Uh, and I was thinking back to my own working career, and I haven't had uh, an office since the first job out of school. We got offices there, but every job since then has been open air, constant interruption. You need to wear your headphones just to get some peace and quiet. Uh, Actually, Yusuf, you you linked us to this. Yeah, I I, I did, and it's interesting because I've I've never actually had an office, and I've had sort of open floor policies where basically anybody can just kind of meander to a specific work area, and yeah, you, if there's a disturbance, you got to put your headphones on. And I've seen some companies tout this idea of well, we have a sort of open floor plan, but we also have offices or quiet rooms where people can go work, but I don't know. I kind of think there's something to be said about, you know, giving everybody some sort of an, uh, an office or, or Their own space. And this article really? actually refers to, you know, a lot of it is we just hear, well, it's more collaborative or whatever. The example that he gives, and one of the last ones, is that the author, Jason Pfeiffer, he likes whiskey, and so he used to have uh, whiskey tasting in his office on Fridays where you would all, everyone would come into his office and they'd all do this. And he's like, I'm not going to do that in an open space because I'm not going to be that guy. That's just a thing to do if you're trying to get work done. But in that Unfortunately, context, there's, a, there's a big chunk of us who are those guys right now in Cambridge. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to do that, you have to, I mean, where else are you going to do it? You, you, you don't have your own space. My point was that he was saying it actually was it created opportunities for coworkers to bond interpersonally bond, just not collaboratively to build a product bond, which he gives in another section of the article why that's hogwash as well, uh, his word, not mine. But he was talking about the fact that you're not going to have an in-depth conversation uh, with someone in open space that might veer towards the more personal, because it's just a, you're not going to do that. So I think there's something to be said for this space that is your own, that no matter how you try to do it with cubicles or you know open floor plans, it just doesn't work. And I kind of feel like this is the global warming of the tech work world now. You have basically 
the people paying for the office space, the, the business side of the business saying, it's the same, it's fine, it's, there's no reduction in productivity, in fact, it's better. And they're just kind of selling this stuff that science actually tells us you're wrong. But they keep just banging this drum because they don't want that, you know, they don't want to put up offices. And he, again, you look at companies that are really killing it, even Joel Spolsky's company, Fog Creek, big deal about all of our engineers have their own office, and it pays off. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad to see more articles like this that are just sort of calling out the climate change denier bullshit as it relates to open offices. Yeah, well, one thing that I'm kind of wondering, though, is, you know, the opponents, the, the, the idea that every, everybody should have their own office is a, the idea that, well, you know, if you have an office, you're, you're a manager or above. Is that, because that's something that I've heard. I've heard, you know, various companies, people generally in the management tier say that, well, you know, you, you can't have an office unless you're a manager or above. So I'm kind of wondering if, if that's the sort of notion on the business side. No, I don't think that's it. Because like I said, I, I as a developer, I had a, my own office coming out of, of uh, my first job out of school. Although it's interesting, I, now that I think back, when I started, I was in a cubicle, and then it was like when I was when I was there long enough, which was like six months or something, and you kind of got upgraded to an office. But that was more of a space thing, I think. But I honestly think it's a, a financial thing, right? Mm. Offices cost more money, uh, yep. and it costs more in space to have them. And so we bought this sort of, there's a limited number of offices because we're not going to give everyone an office. And then once you make that statement, once that is a, established as the policy, then you start getting into political games about, well, did the senior architects get an office? Did the middle managers get an office? You know, who gets an office? All of that is caused by artificial scarcity of a resource. Yeah. If yeah. everybody got an office, then it wouldn't be a, an issue. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Glad to see this being discussed. Uh, we'll see what happens if, if it makes a dent in that notion. Last up tonight, Yusuf pointed this to us, this actually very interesting and beautiful infographic about code bases and millions of lines of code. Uh, Yusuf, there's some fun stuff in here. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, some of the things that sort of stuck out to me were, uh, I guess, like the space shuttle. They don't say which space shuttle had, I guess, uh, around f uh, about... Well, hopefully they're running all the same version. Right, I hope so. <laughs> uh, 400,000 lines of code, and then uh, the Hadron Collider has three and a half million lines of code. And so they have a whole bunch of other interesting... I love uh, this. So Windows 3.1 has like, what, maybe a couple million lines of code, 1992, yeah. and then it points out that HD DVD player on the Xbox, just the player, five million lines of code. And, and just for kicks, there's the uh, Jurassic Park code base. <laughs> right, 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 right. probably non-existent, but yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the Jurassic Park code base number isn't pulled from a quote from the movie where no, it you know, is. Samuel L. Jackson yeah. was like, it is. It is? It is? Sure it is. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. 100 million points to the person who did this info. Yeah, it says source Dennis Nedry, who's the character. The other thing I really like that I thought was hilarious is that it includes bacteria as lines of code. Uh, syphilis yeah. bacteria, actually, um, which is an interesting choice. Uh, but they have that in there, and then they have the genetic code of a mouse. And it turns out that the genetic code of the mouse is actually the highest on the scale that they have. They say a parent size of healthcare.gov website reported figure is more than twice the size of, a, of the genetic code of a mouse. But the other fascinating one is car software. Average modern high-end wow. car software is like 100 billion lines of code. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah go take a look at this, see if you're... See if your favorite product is listed here. It has Visual Studio on it. it has some interesting, interesting things in there. So, oh, mm, oh, 
No, I just noticed in the infographic there are these big arcs that go down the infographic, and they're showing you the connection between versions of products. So, like, the first one they have is a Linux kernel 2.2.0, and then if you follow the arc out, then it connects it to the Linux kernel 2.6.0, so it's easy to compare. And I just noticed that now. And it shows the percentage increase. Yeah, Yusuf, this is great. This is awesome. All right, next up, uh, I chat with Ed Lassie here on The Ship Show. back to the ship show i'm your host paul Reed. so today we're joined by a couple of special guests from atlassian sarah goff dupont who's a bamboo marketing manager and developer advocate at atlassian and uh, james dumay who's the bamboo product manager welcome to the ship show hey thanks for having us on yeah thank you very much so uh, i wanted to start because i think when people think think of Atlassian or here at Atlassian, they automatically think Jira. And so we have, both of you work on stuff that's not Jira. Atlassian does other things. Yeah, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing that people often think of when they hear Atlassian is actually Jira. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jira. <laughs> Jira. Yep. Uh, but no, it's, it's Jira, really. Yes, really, really. it really is. So you both work on Bamboo, and for those that don't know, Bamboo is Atlassian's continuous integration product. Yep. And, and now continue deployment, and we're going to talk about that in a sec. And then uh, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of other products in the line too. There's what? Jira Agile for Agile planning. Jira, Jira Capture for capturing uh, tests if you're doing sort of blitz testing. Jira Service Desk, Bitbucket for Git hosting in the cloud. Stash uh, for Git behind the firewall. Hip chat. There's lots of stuff. Hip, that's the other one. Yeah, that's the other one that a lot of people use, and I everyone loves some hip chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, they love the billboard at least. <laughs> and the emoticons. Um, that's my favorite part. Oh, uh, fisheye. Yep, fisheye, and and it's it's ever present sidekick. Crucible. Crucible is sort of traditional code reviews, and FishEye is like a repository browser and gives you some interesting stats and telemetry on your on activity in your repo as well. So it really is kind of, people talk about full stack, it's really the full stack of developer support tools. Darn near. The only thing that we don't really have represented there is uh, configuration management. Mm. Uh, we don't have a, a puppet or a chef competitor. Right, okay. Can I insert okay. a little piece of Jira trivia just because we get asked this all the time? We get asked why it, what the heck, why is it called Jira? Um, so, <laughs> and why and, is it called Jira? <laughs> see, and it, that's a valid question. <laughs> um, so, Bugzilla was one of the big issue trackers out there at the time. Um, right. Of course, Bugzilla I, is still around. I worked on Bugzilla back in the day, actually, back in college. All right. Wow. Um, so you know it well. Yeah. And uh, when Mike and Scott, our founders, were coming up with a name for this new issue tracker that they were building, they wanted to use Gojira, which of course is the Japanese word for Godzilla, or maybe just generally for monster. Mm -hmm. But copyright, you know, copyright issues are copyright issues. So it just got shortened to Jira. Interesting. So yeah, now I know for the next Atlassian trivia. Yeah. <laughs> Your next um, Atlassian cocktail party. You can yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll come to that in a sec, but one of the interesting things that I always find with Jira is that I work with a lot of clients that use Jira, and if you look at their instances, they're very different. The customization and the customizability of Jira is kind of amazing, and to see the different workflows that people use for it, I'm always amazed by that. The flaming circus hoops that people make Jira jump through to support their workflows. Mm -hmm. It is an incredibly configurable 
valuable and powerful tool because it's so configurable. We try to make JIRA such that whatever your process is on the ground, you can reflect that in JIRA. There's a dark side to that, though, right? Like, we also kind of give you enough rope to hang yourself with. So <laughs> Those flaming hoops can actually burn. They can. They can. I mean, we've, we've heard of customers that have, you know, on the order of 60 workflow transitions oh. for their issues. And, you know, we don't want to tell you how to live your life, but... Simple you know, is always better. Our customers like that, we, we do encourage them to think about what they really need all those. <laughs> um, and we don't, you know, we don't sell consulting services along with the products. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do instead, and this goes for all of our products really, is that subject matter experts like myself and James or people on the, the JIRA teams, we try to put out a lot of articles and blogs about best practices and things like that that can kind of guide users towards the, the simplest yet most optimal use of the tool that would right. be appropriate for them. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, one of the best, uh, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but one of the best posts that I read about Git code line management and flows was actually an Atlassian blog post discussing at a high level the issues you run into. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of the documentation that you have is great in a general like kind of subject matter context. So that, that also brings me not to another point. I mean, that's the exact same challenge that we have with design at Atlassian, that we have to make all of our products really powerful, like powerful enough to support everybody's workflows, uh, at least most people's workflows, and really reflect you know what they're doing on the ground. But on the flip side, have to make sure that it's usable by the rest of the organization that Jira goes into or Bamboo or Stash or any of those products. So like it's it's this balance between power and simplicity and people understanding what's going on. And that's our, that's our biggest challenge. And I think I think we're making some progress uh, <laughs> in that area. But I actually that was the next thing I, I did want to bring up because I wanted to ask, I mean, when you look at other tools in the space, you mentioned Puppet Chef, you might include GitHub or Jenkins or any of these other tools. I wanted to ask like what are some of the the things that you find at lasting having to solve for customers that distinguishes kind of the types of things that you do with some of the the other products in that space and specifically even some of the open source products in the space because it sounds like you, your customers have a lot of unique challenges and to the point about Jira, James, you were saying you want to support all of those workflows. And in a lot of cases, the open source answer to a lot of those things is, well, A, we don't, we just don't support it, or B, the snarky open source answer to it doesn't do X is now accepting patches, right? So I wanted to ask, like, what you find are, are some things that are distinctive in that regard. So I think the ecosystem is, like, our number one best tool to satisfy people when we've said no. And I think that creates <laughs> a lot of... I, and and I think as a software company, you should you should say no more than you say yes. Like you should say no a lot more than you say yes. And I guess lucky for us, like we've you know, over time we've we've seen that you know the power in building software tools and many software tools is building a platform out of those software tools. So if there is a problem that we're not willing to solve, somebody in our ecosystem can, and or someone in our partner network, our Atlassian Expert network can solve using that ecosystem and, and using those APIs, which I think is, is pretty cool. So I guess one thing that we try to concentrate on uh, across all of the products is really looking at the way that people work and shaping the tools to fit the best way for those for, for teams to work. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think what sets us apart from a lot of open source competitors 
it is. And I mean, Bamboo and Jenkins is a, is a good example for me to land on, a more natural one for me to talk about, certainly. You know a little I, something I mean, about the space. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, if, if you buy Atlassian tools, it comes down to, hey, here's a couple of different workflows that we can try and, and we recommend versus, oh, uh, here's, here's Jenkins or here's Bugzilla. Go and add these patches or these plugins in these combinations and try that out. And maybe that will work for you. Maybe that doesn't work. Maybe you don't have it doesn't time. crunch your data. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you have the time to experiment with all those different combinations to get the right one? Or do you want to try and... Uh, we use our own tools to build software ourselves. So, And there's, there's lots of teams within Atlassian using different workflows. I mean, we're not just centered around one way of doing things. So we have a proven workflow that we can recommend to you that will, that will make you successful at whatever you're doing. And, and we do that thinking for you. So I guess that's that's where the value is. Try to offer options on those workflows too, because I mean, as James said, we use our own tools, but you know, we kind of have the way that we have a lot of dev teams internally, but but the processes or that there's not a, a ton of difference between the technology stacks and the sort of workflow processes on the ground that each of those teams are using. So we really value customer feedback too when we go out to user groups and DevOps days and conferences and things like that and talk to people about like, oh, you know, I tried blah, you know, Atlassian tool blah, but it didn't really work for me. That's a great opportunity for us to be like, okay, great, tell me more. <laughs> like, right. Tell me why that didn't work for you. Every tech company has, I mean, it's just, there's an infinite combination of technology stacks and processes and needs out there. And the only way that we get to hear about them is when people who are our customers or are considering being our customers tell us about their specific needs. James, I, I wanted to mention, because I was chatting with Matt Dore, who does a lot of work with Jira. Yeah, he was telling me about the, the marketplace, and uh, he was saying some of the plugin authors live off of their plugins, and I found that amazing that they, they write a plugin for Jira or whatever that does a specific thing and does it very well and allows you to kind of customize with a particular maybe oddball process, but you need it for maybe the industry in or whatever, and I, and I I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, there's at least a couple examples of that. Um, there's Bob Swift, who's uh, been writing plugins for various, mostly for Jira, but for various Atlassian tools for years. And he basically <laughs> has not retired, but he sort of, you know, he quit his day job, basically. Right. Uh, he's working independently for quite a while. And then I think he hired a small team of people, maybe had a handful of people working with him. And that business that he built actually was just acquired by another Atlassian Marketplace vendor, another plug-in builder. Well, you know, that's that's the other funny thing, too, because I was talking with Matt, and he has a similar story. So it's like this kind of thriving ecosystem of, like, businesses that get acquired and people that, you know, I, I kind of had never seen that before. Yeah, yeah um, it's, and it's, it's a little sub-ecosystem of its own. And I think you see that with other platforms, too, like the Salesforce ecosystem. System. Jeez, that's a that's a beast. Um, oh sure, I just don't think I'd ever seen it kind of on the dev tool side, you know. Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I really do Salesforce integrations. The other ones I can probably think of are like maybe Oracle or some of the big databases, right? But this is the first time I'd seen it around a stack of developer support tools. Gotcha. I, I think the big Atlassian ecosystem success story that sticks out for me is Balsamic. Oh, I believe well, no. it originally started as a Confluence plugin for doing mockups and has grown into its own product uh, outside of the Atlassian ecosystem. System, like yeah. in its own right, and uh, wildly successful. Uh, quite a, I think they're a, a, 
fairly big company these days, and and you know got their got their fingers in a lot of pies. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the summit because that recently happened. It was the first week in October. Yeah, I wanted to to talk about that. Uh, I I was able to attend and and kind of get a feel for Atlassian community. It was it was my first summit, and there were a lot of kind of interesting new products announced there. The the couple that really stick out in my mind are Service Desk. Mm-hmm. Um, people were using Jira kind of for Service Desk type things, and uh, that was one of the you know, and they kind of had cobbled together workflows, and everyone was slightly different. But you released a product just around Service Desk stuff. Yep. So that's mostly meant for well, it is intended for internal Service Desk usage, so like your internal IT team. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people looked at that and got really excited, and they're saying, "How can I use this as my ex my customer facing Service Desk?" Mm-hmm. And to be perfectly honest, we didn't structure the licensing for Service Desk such that it really makes sense as an external customer-facing tool. But we're looking at ways to rectify that now because there's been such a huge demand for it. <laughs> well, and the other thing, too, I can see, you know, a lot of people talk about maybe your tools team or your build team as a service-oriented team within an organization. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times when people are like, well, I need a new version of a library or whatever, you know, if you have a process in place that's not just, hey, let's all grab random jars off the internet and shove them into our product, I could see that being used from a service desk side on built-in because, you know, we talk, it's go file a bug or go file yeah. a Jira. So it's the same sort of tracking work in that sort of method. I, I guess the biggest thing that Service Desk gives you over just plain old vanilla Jira is it gives you a concept of SLAs. So you can actually define an SLA, and when an issue is added to that a Service Desk queue, mm-hmm. um, you, you can track for that issue whether or not the SLA has been met for that bit of work, which you is, know, is, is super powerful in, in those sort of service teams. Like, how many times have you filed a ticket in you know a medium, even in a, even in a small to medium organ, like size organization, and sort of just had that ticket rot there, right? Like, it's, it's right. these people job to kind of, you know, to enable you to do your work. And I, I know that I've uh, I've been in that situation where, you know, I filed a ticket with our IT team or our build engineering team, and then three months later, I'm like, the issue's over, it's obsolete. Like, I, I figured out a different way of doing it without uh, without needing them. And they're like, oh, do you still want this? And it's like, well, I wanted this like three months ago. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so the, you know, the other thing, though, to that point, I mean, the nice thing about being able to establish the SLAs and then have metrics around that is, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this conversation, you go to your manager and you're like, we need more people on the build team or on the IT team. And they're like, well, justify that. Justify that cost. And you can say, well, you know, if we're not meeting a certain established SLA that the business has defined, you can have that conversation. So that's super useful for that type of uh, convincing. That's probably the only facet of service desk that people who work at startups aren't cringing over. Because I can just imagine people, (laughs) folks listening to this who work for like a 20-person company going like, ew, process! Right, right. (laughs) It is process with a capital P. Yeah, (laughs) with a big, ugly, illuminated capital P. But, you know, in larger organizations where the people who are on your engineering services team or your internal IT team don't sit within you know, within Nerf gun distance of you, something like Service Desk is really useful. Well, well, look, even for startups, having having an SLA for customer issues that are coming in, like bugs and questions, I think it's really important to, to gauge whether or not you're being successful at delivering your customers some sort of value, right? Well, that's a good point. I, yeah, I hadn't thought of that particular use case for having it represent SLA uh, customer value. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and being scientific about it, I think, as much as possible. Like, if you're a startup and you've got limited resources, you've, you don't want to be burning, like, dumb trucks of uh, VC money or, or angel money uh, spinning your wheels, right? You want to make sure that every... I thought that was the whole every... point of being a startup. I thought that was the whole point of Silicon Valley. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, we're gonna <laughs> like get it. that out. Oh, we're gonna have to get out of plane. See, see, I really want. You know, have you seen that game, uh, Cards Against Humanity? Oh yeah. Yeah, I wanna, yeah, I wanna, I wanna create a, a version of that, like Cards Against Silicon Valley. Oh. I think that that would it'd just be amazing. Can you imagine? Oh the burn, no. The burn. Um, it's funny. I mean, I, this sort of pushback against process of any kind. This kind of. I mean, I understand that the pendulum swings back, and there's a lot of places that have process that's that's old process that's not relevant to the business anymore. But they still do it, and they don't know why. So I actually do a lot of work, kind of helping organizations work through that. But on the startup side, it's just immature to be like, no process whatsoever. And if you look, Sarah, to your point, this whole uh, mantra in the startup world about uh, plan, execute, measure, and then replay, you know, that whole feedback loop of data. If you don't have the data, you can't do any of that. And collecting that requires some amount of discipline on a process side or, or whether it's building that into your product, it, it requires some of that. So Yeah, that's true. And that's, yeah. that's an important, I mean, that's, you can make that argument in many areas, not just like SLAs on customer bugs or on sort of engineering service requirements, but you know you can measure it in the, you know things like my brain immediately goes to continuous integration. Not surprisingly, so yeah. <laughs> you, can measure it. you know you look at things like how your builds are doing and have you know a, a CI process gives you measurable data there. Right. How often your builds are breaking and what what the causes of those are. Yeah, that, good point. That's uh, actually the other thing I wanted to talk about at the summit because you guys had some presentations with Bamboo and the integration with Jira and all of the tools around. I think there was a stash or possibly Bitbucket but there was certainly get in the mix around yeah. this. I mean, there really is, we always make the joke about give me the DevOps button, but it really was from the demo, this sort of, we had a code base, did a feature branch, you were able to go into Bamboo, like click, get a build, get some data, then have some deployment information around it. And so it really kind of was that holy grail. You made it look really simple, and I know, I'm sure it's it's more difficult to get all of that kind of set up and working smoothly, but it really was kind of the thing we all talk about. Well, we're, we're sure trying, and I give James a lot of credit in the Bamboo Dev team. The idea is, you know, to think about the ways that we have, have had the most success developing software and try to make that best way the easy way to do it and connect the tools together to make that easy. And, and those were all features of the new Bamboo 5, right? Yep. So that's yep. all in the Bamboo 5.x series, we'll say. But the, so the tools involved there were Jira for issue tracking. And you link Stash to your Jira instance. And Stash is the sort of on-premises Git repository manager that we make. Mm -hmm. If you've got that connected to Jira, then you'll get a little link right there in your Jira issue that says create branch. Takes you into Stash. Stash pulls all sorts of information Big from the Jira issue. Oh, do a bit bucket. Yeah, or, nice. And the repo manager then uses information from the Jira issue, such as is this a bug? Is this a user story? What's the Jira issue key? What's the title? And it uses that kind of information to sort of pre-suggest the parameters around like what your branch is going to look like. What, oh, nice. what so it's it's kind of like a going to live in the repo. It's kind of like a Git flow almost built in and with kind of more smarts. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very similar, yeah. And so then you've got a, a branch for your issues. You can work on that and pound on it and break stuff, and it's not going to affect the rest of your team. And as soon as you make a commit into that branch and push it to the repo, Bamboo discovers the new branch and immediately and automatically applies your CI scheme to that dev branch. Yeah, nice. I, oh, and I remember James did a, like a quick demo for me of it, and it was it was awesome to kind of see that work. Uh, you mentioned a couple times that, that uh, Atlassian you, you guys all dog food your own products and one of the talks at the summit was from I think it was one of the Stash developers and they were talking about 
Well, they were basically talking about how they developed Stash very quickly because they wanted to get the product out as quickly as possible. And so I, I just thought that was it was very interesting to hear this story when you talk about this stuff. It's not you're not just talking about it; you really do live it. And we're in a really unique spot, right? Like as as the makers of Dev Tools, we get to fun toys to play with. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So dog booting our own stuff is actually kind of fun, and it gives us, you know, I think James could probably give, go into more detail, but that thing in Bamboo I just described, where Bamboo finds a new branch in your repo and automatically applies your CI scheme to it. Like We built that because we found that we needed it. Because mm. our developers were like, ugh, it's such a pain to go in and like manually clone my builds to this new branch that I'm only going to work on for like two days. And so James and his team said, you know what? We can fix that for you. We have computers that do math and can do yes, that quickly. exactly. Yeah. We'll make I mean, the computer I, do it for you. I mean, there's, there's two ways you can approach a problem like that. What the one problem is is that you can Sarah just raised the, the first point, right? Like people weren't testing their branches because they weren't going into Bamboo and cloning the build configuration and then updating the branch, right? So we could have made it super easy for people to clone a plan and set a branch. Like that kind of thing is easy, right? But when you like dig into a problem like that, you're like, well, Actually, it's not just this small problem and this small problem that we have to solve. It's a whole workflow problem that we have to solve. And I see uh, customers who are coming from, I mean, uh, I'm not trying to sell anything here today, but I see people coming from, you know, the Jenkins world or the open source world for our other products. And they're trying to piece together these small, very focused plugins or patches to that software to try and solve a larger workflow piece. And I think that's what we do at Atlassian Best is kind of peeling back the you know, asking why, why, why are you trying to do that and, and peeling back the reasons and the benefits for, that people want to get out of that process and then building something that's smooth and is going to work for everybody and, and satisfy all of those needs. I think that that's the real value we can add as a creative of developer tools with developers ourselves. And you, you start to see patterns and it's right. about working out how, like what those patterns are and, and why they exist and, and, and building something that just works. It sounds like you're talking a lot, you know, and you hear this a lot in, uh, you know, lean thinking and uh, and then therefore DevOps because they're kind of related, This uh, the systems thinking. And you were talking about it on the workflows. It was like people weren't doing it because it was hard to do and you wouldn't really know to address that unless you kind of stood back and looked at the whole kind of the whole pipeline and, and the human factor part of how people are doing their work and then be able to kind of solve it from that angle. Yeah, I mean it's I think it's very easy. Before uh, I was running product for Bamboo, I was an engineer on Bamboo and, and I've been working on developing tooling, uh, internal developer tooling at a, a different company before Atlassian. And I think that every engineer's reaction to a problem is to like fire up an IDE and start coding. <laughs> and and I, I like to discourage that thinking as much as possible. I mean, like if you have a serious problem with the way that you develop software, go get a whiteboard and put down all those problems and, and draw out a process diagram and go, right, well, what are we doing here like where you know like the efficiency gain is not to be made in like any one area it's to be made it by improving the whole picture and and the way that you work entirely rather so I mean that's a bit of thinking that we have to get out of uh, ourselves on the bamboo team I mean we go through we're going through this process at the moment where we're actually giving developers on our team a chance to sort of be a PM for an entire release for a particular marquee feature that's interesting. So that's kind of like the DevOps where they say, you know, make the developers be on call. Well, it's, it's getting the developers to carry the customer in. 
in their head for an entire lease. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, Sarah wrote a really good blog post, actually, on uh, blogs.lassian.com about that. Oh, we'll link to that in the show notes. One of the things I wanted to bring up that I noticed, kind of just chatting with people at the summer, I was surprised at how many organizations seem to still struggle with the idea of not continuous delivery or deployment, but continuous integration. There's yeah. That's still not a solved problem, and I, and I think it's funny. I was actually having this conversation just the other day about DevOps and continuous delivery is the new shiny. So everybody's talking about that, but you see organizations kind of leaping over continuous integration and having a stable continuous integration pipeline and a stable nightly build and trying to get to the continuous deployment. And it's just not, yeah, it's not going to happen. And and so I, I thought that was interesting because my experience I, I worked with Tinderbox back in the day, which was kind of the grandfather of all of these continuous integration systems. So continuous integration is not like a new thing, but I, I was surprised that that's still a struggle. It really I is. I mean, I used to be amazed by how many people would tell me that they aren't doing CI yet. But the more and more I go out and talk to people, the less the less amazed I am by it, to tell you the truth. And what I hear from people over and over is that they are stuck in the sort of downward spiral or status quo spiral of manual testing. Mm. Um, it is an up, like you can't do continuous integration unless you've got a, a robust automated test suite. I think I'm safe in saying that. Well, um, well, even, I mean, it's sometimes like, I, I think you're right, but even integrating the code to see that it builds. Right, I mean, well, and that's that, only continuous build. Right. <laughs> that's not continuous integration. Right, um, but, but I mean, that's the thing is, is that sometimes even that's a, that can be a struggle and they don't, sure. there's not even that. It's like, well, I got my code done, I'm just going to check it in and then I'm going to go home and it's right. like I have no status of and then and then you have me running around as a member of the build team pulling hairs out trying to get people to care about that the bits don't build. Converting from any manual process into an automated version of that manual process that you know and either love or hate <laughs> that is an upfront investment in time and you know there's just there's a there's so much pressure on product teams to move quickly and ship new features and get that stuff out the door that it can be exceedingly difficult for developers and engineering managers or anyone on the product team who wants to take the time and invest in that automation, it's really difficult for them sometimes to make that case to stakeholders elsewhere in the business that say, look, I I know you want us to get this thing out the door and we can do that now, but it's going to take longer than if we had everything automated. And every time we go through a release cycle where we're doing everything, we are losing ground. And what's really struggling is that they've got both internal and external pressure telling them that we don't have time to, to go fast. Mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, so th- that's an interesting point, Sarah. I uh, recently went out to this local charity here in Sydney, and they had some of our development tools, and they wanted some advice on them. And we went out there, and they didn't have source control. They didn't have automated testing. But the, the, the guy that was running the charity, um, he's looking at hiring more developers, and, and he knows that that, that process is going to get more complex. He was like, teach us how to be a better software company. And the first thing we did is sat down and looked at that process and looked at the problems that he had in that process. So a really great example of something that could have been picked up by testing was they pushed a new copy of their website, which was just locally with, they grabbed the files and FTP'd them up to this, this uh, shared server. And they broke all of the PayPal credit card processing. And in the middle of the night saying, no one can uh, make payments on the, on their website. And, and that, that's a 
that's a huge problem. A little bit more about <laughs> when we talked to him a little bit more about testing and saying, you know, automated testing can really help you here. He was like, well, I've heard that testing and doing continuous integration was like having test coverage for my entire code base. And I guess for me, in my heart, TDD sort of died because I, I really believe in that you should be testing the most important things. So that's the case. That's the case if you're lucky, but you got to start. You know, Salesforce, you got to start somewhere. And even if it's a single unit test of something, it's it's starting. But I think what this is going is that you identify those things which are most important. Like, for example, the ability to accept charitable donations if you are a charity. (laughs) That might be one of the first things that an automated test for. Yeah. But the point I think is don't, you know, if you're in the position of having very little in the way of automation or or nothing in the in the way of automation right now, don't think that the only acceptable goal is to have 100% code coverage because that is daunting, you know? Like right. it, it's okay to start with 2 or 3 or 5% test code coverage. You just have to be strategic about what those things are that you're covering, yeah. you know, as James I was mean, saying, and then you build on it from there. If you're a developer or a technical leader in, in your organization or company and you want to sell your boss who you know might not have a really good idea about why testing is important, if you sell it to your boss in a particular way or to the rest of your organization that, well, credit card processing, really super important to us to make money, these are the things that we're going to write tests for, right? Like you have to, if, if you're trying to sell testing in an organization, you have to translate it into the people's language that you're selling it to, right? right? The business so case. What, exactly. So what's the, what's the negative? of not testing, well, if we don't have an automated test and we're doing continuous deployment, and we don't have a test for that credit card gateway, well, someone could commit something and we could end well, up see, with a broken uh, shopping see, cart, right? You see, yeah, you see that a lot with continuous, you know, we, we were talking about jumping over the continuous integration and kind of this, the 101 level best practices to continuous deployment or delivery, and it's like, yes, let's ship shit faster, like, because we, do, we don't have the test, we don't have the data to be able to do that, and you see the organizations that are really getting it out of the ballpark in the continuous delivery realm, and some of them talk about all of the the tests they do or the, the way they deploy a canary and have metrics around that. And you have to take that into account before you kind of go on that journey. Mm. Well, yeah. we tend to think of it in two different ways, continuous integration. We think of them in, in terms of an inner loop and an outer loop. So the inner loop is all about you're a developer, you're making changes, and you want to get some feedback whether or not those changes in the next 20 minutes are actually working. So right. that's sort of like your canary, right? Like you want to understand that, okay, those, those things are actually working. And then you might have like the outer loop where the tests that you run might take a lot longer, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter if they break. So, like, I hear about organizations like Etsy and Facebook, uh, those sort of organizations that are leading the charge in continuous delivery, I mean, they have those canary tests, that inner loop that say, all right, well, we're going to deploy these automatically, but we might actually have some longer running tests over here that are not going to block the deployment, right? right? right. But because, because they've got that pipeline really well oiled, uh, if one of those outer loop tests fail, they can fix it and, and hopefully it hasn't impacted their customer as much, right, uh, just right. because they can move quick. Right, so, exactly. uh, yeah. so I wanted to ask, the other thing I kind of noticed about the summit, there was a lot of discussions around culture and this whole DevOps is a tools is a culture thing, you know, I mean, DevOps is the buzzword, so people were talking a lot about culture. There was actually like a, at least a couple culture presentations, it might have been a culture track actually. I wanted to ask both of you, do you find that in larger organizations there's a lost in translation problem when it comes to culture? What are your thoughts on on that? Because I I just thought... It was very front of mind at the summit. I mean, Sarah could probably talk more about this, but 
I think that there's a, a big misconception that if you buy a tool for that practice, you are doing that practice. So one of the <laughs> things that we were very careful of when we, we were talking about DevOps was that, oh, well, if you buy Bamboo and Jira Agile and get all that stuff going, it doesn't make you a DevOps team. It right. doesn't make you an Agile team if you buy Jira Agile, right? You have to be kind of living and breathing it. Right. Somebody actually asked me internally, like, what about the tagline DevOps in a box? And I was like, uh-uh, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that at all. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, like James said, purchasing, calling it a DevOps tool and then purchasing that does not a DevOps team make. It really, I think it really does boil down to the, the culture of collaboration and sharing that happens, like, that happens on the physical floor. If you look at both Agile and uh, DevOps and those practices, it is all fundamentally about communicating better with the people that you work with, right? And and working better as a team. And tools can only facilitate that. They don't force you to do that, I guess. Well, and and in a lot of cases, the tools gather the data. They tell you how healthy your build is or what your test coverage is, but they don't prescribe anything about the communication aspect. Right, and Bamboo will tell you that a build has failed because it has 20 broken integration tests, but if you really need to deploy that build somewhere... (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> and well, and the the other side too. And we've all seen this where you we turn on the integration tests failing means the build fails. It doesn't go orange or whatever. It goes red, mm-hmm. right? And then it's red for like two weeks. One of those. Failed integration tests don't mean that uh, your developers suddenly start caring about it. You know, you have to address that issue if it is an issue separately. And that is a cultural thing, by the way. That culture of urgency, you know, to address the broken build. Right, yeah. There's no tool in the world that is going to do that for you. It's all about how your people behave on the ground. Why bet DevOps in the box could? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if I ever figure out how to to create DevOps in a box or a bottle, I will make a billion (laughs) dollars. I think the, I think there is you know a, a lot of the people I chat with there I think there is DevOps in a bottle it's called bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drink uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I think with the Atlassian on demand guys it's uh, tequila. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing I you know I a lot of times I think and we've been guilty of it here on the show we we tend to make fun of culture and the problems in big large enterprises. It's like, "Oh, stodgy enterprises." There's all sorts of nice ways to kind of say that when in reality we're just kind of poking fun or being snarky. What I thought was interesting is that being in the sessions at the summit and chatting with people, it's a lot harder to make those comments and make fun of them when you're talking with them and looking them in the face. You're actually associating that with individuals. So in some sense, it was a kind of a lesson in empathy because there were a lot of people that are trying to do the right thing and they have their own hurdles for whatever reason. And, and so that was kind of refreshing to see a lot of the, the whiz-bang, spiffy things we talk about at DevOps Days and all of these other events. It's not like people at big enterprises aren't talking about them and trying to do them. Uh, and there were a lot of people at the summit that were having successes and trials and tribulations doing that in their org. Yeah, and the, man, those those folks are warriors. Like, there is just no other way to say it. I mean, when you think about something like DevOps, it is a cultural thing at root, and it permeates every every part of your company, from marketing to customer support to the product team to legal and finance in in some ways. So you can have a great culture of collaboration and you know obliterated silos and all that kind of stuff much easier when you're a team of 20 or even a team of 200 than you can when you're a, a team of 20,000. Right. So I, I, I can't do much else but tip my hat to the, the people at those 20,000 right. person companies mm. who are trying to find small ways to make those cultural and process changes 
within their sphere of influence, which is probably going to be very small as compared to the, the company as a whole. Yeah, it was right. interesting because a lot of the people I spoke to at Summit, big organizations have been sent on missions by their CTOs. And, and they're like, you've got to go to Atlassian Summit and go and learn about Agile and go, go learn about you know all sorts of different things and come back and teach us how to do it. I think that a lot of people don't give credit to some of the leaders in these organizations because they're, I mean, when we tend to think of like CTOs and CEOs of big organizations, we think of like boring as a bag of nails, you know, IBM executives or, you know what I mean? Like, big, you know, like old school people who don't understand technology. But a lot of these CTOs that are organizing technical teams in these big organizations, they've actually been successful at running smaller companies. And sure. so they've been hired to apply that kind of, that smaller, quicker, leaner, faster mindset to these bigger organizations. So I think there's change that's happening. Yeah, the other thing too that I think a lot of people, and I, frankly, I'm just kind of tired of it, is a lot of those companies, you mentioned IBM, they're soft software runs ATMs and cash registers and the grocery store and things that, you know, you want to work. And when people say, you know, I think they forget sometimes that, you know, I like my cat pictures on the internet as much as the next person, but we're not talking about poking people and posting cat pictures. We're talking about software that needs to work and is very important to societal infrastructure in some sense, you know, mm. uh, hospital systems offer, stuff like that. Yep. And and that changes the conversation. Higher. Yeah, that changes the conversation in a very material way that I think a lot of people that like to make fun, and again, I've been guilty of it, but sometimes you got to temper that. One of my favorite customers that, that we have uh, for Atlassian and Bamboo in particular is NASA's JPL. Mm. I'm bring them up. Think, yay. Right, yay. <laughs> <laughs> like, whenever I think of like my proudest moment at Atlassian, it was when they landed that uh, Mars Curiosity mission. Like, it's an SUV-sized rover that landed on Mars, a notoriously difficult place to uh, land a, a spacecraft. And they actually use Bamboo and a couple of the Atlassian tools to help build some of the, the science mission software back here on Earth for that mission. And you now you have to think about not only is this public money, so like it's being scrutinized by the, you know, the United States Congress, the way that they spend this money, right. but they're also they're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars into a robotic space program. And so this stuff has to work, right? Talking to somebody at Atlassian Summit, they build machines for credit cards, payments in cabs, right. um, embedded software. It's hard to do software updates. and Yeah, you can't continuously deploy to all the cabs in New York. Right. Well, but if you're Tesla, for example, you can continuously deploy. I heard a great story about Tesla. Yeah. Uh, they can continuously deploy software updates uh, every time someone goes in for a monthly service at a Tesla auto dealer. Right. Um, so they, they, I guess like a lot of these things that have powered innovation for consumer companies on the web are being adopted by more traditional industries or industries that really hadn't really thought about software is sort of like the core of their businesses. Right. And now they're going, oh, well, actually, when it comes down to it, we're, we're all software companies. It's like that Mark Anderson, software is eating the world, right? right? Software is in everything. And so I think a lot of organizations are trying to figure out, well, if that's our core competency, like if that's what gives us our competitive advantage, well, we're going to invest time in making sure that our software teams know how to build great software and that they rock it doing it and they deliver value. Well, it's um, interesting you bring that up because I was thinking of exactly that software is eating the world thing uh, when you were talking about 
about how you donated time to the charity and they were hiring developers. It's like you wouldn't generally think that a charity would be hiring software developers, but it makes sense if that's the main way th that you can impact the problem you're trying to solve. Oh. So I had a couple last things I wanted to talk about. Um, some people may know that Atlassian has a GitHub-alike called Bitbucket mm -hmm. and it has the same, it's free for open source projects. Yeah. Yep. In fact, actually all Atlassian tools are free for open source projects. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, so the, the reason I wanted to mention it is because one of the things that I noticed that Bitbucket has that it's worth the price of admission, but the admission is free, so I don't know how you do that, is being able to turn off forced pushes. And, mm -hmm. and I love that feature. And the reason I wanted to call it out, actually, is because I find a lot of organizations that are new to Git struggle with users that don't intend to force push, and they accidentally do, and they destroy the world while doing that. And there's no solution to that problem if you're using a hosted GitHub repository. But Bitbucket has that problem solved. Our, our opinion about Bitbucket is that Bitbucket is the place where people come to do real work in the cloud. Like, if, if you look <laughs> at the... <laughs> like, we want to that point, like, it goes back to the original conversation we had earlier about workflow. Like, understanding what the pitfalls and advantages are in a particular workflow, and then, like, codifying that in the product, and codifying that across all products, that's what we do. Yeah. So we branch permissioning, blocking force pushes, integration with other services, and we're going to be doing a lot more of that stuff. I mean, you should you should watch Bitbucket in the next year. But, I mean, those guys on that team, like, mad props to them, because they are damn smart. Yeah. 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 You know, whenever we push out a feature like that too. We we do our best to accompany it with some kind of blog post or something that communicates our thoughts behind it and really helps users understand like why we have put this mechanism in there for them to use in case they haven't had the misfortune of having everything destroyed by a force push. They, right. can, read about, they can read about that in an anticipatory way. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of those things that you won't run into until you run into it, and then your life is very sad. Very yeah, sad. I mean, that, that I mean, this just actually, ironically, this just happened with the Jenkins repo. Yeah. The Jenkins yeah. Git repo, and there was a blog post on that. Yeah, I mean, I think man. you have to be very lucky to be Jenkins, to be a very high-profile project and, and get on the on the front page of Hacker News and have someone from GitHub help you out. I mean, like, mad props to GitHub for, for spending the time to help someone out and, and actually do that. But, like, if you don't have the ability to kind of, like, kick up a bit of a storm on Hacker News that, and you do something like that, you are boned, right? right. Like, well, and even, and even if you do, aren't there things you'd rather be doing with your time? I mean, again, to your point, yes, uh, it was great that GitHub could help, but I'm sure they probably would rather be coding something else than going through a ref log on the server to find commit objects. Seriously, you'd probably rather be having a root canal than... Right, to, yeah. I mean, yeah. Or some bourbon. So I wanted to bring up, Sarah, we were talking at DevOps Days. We were chatting and uh, Sasha was there and we were kind of laughing about the fact that there's this weird dichotomy, right? Because Jira is sort of everywhere. You see that all over the place. People are very familiar with it. And I think to, to the conversation we're just having, Bitbucket is certainly up and coming. Stash for people that can't put their source code in the cloud. And yes, there are actually people that don't want to put it in somebody else's hands. Uh, right. is, is Yeah, certainly uh, coming up. But we were talking about the fact that a lot of times people be talking about Atlassian and they have this like ugh kind of response to it and then your answer to that was it was like why 
tell, tell me why. You, you know, you really wanted the feedback about that. And I remember the upshot of that conversation was actually, we don't have any real answers for you. Like, it, it's just this kind of weird thing. And you were like, no, no, talk with us. Like, and you said that earlier about product stuff. It's like, we want to get that feedback. As I was saying before, like, we are in a cool spot because we get to use our own toys in our day-to-day work, but we only use them for our purposes. And we, there's no way to imagine all of the infinite purposes and use cases of all the people out there. So when somebody says, oh, you know, I, I looked at Jira or I looked at Bamboo and it just didn't, just didn't do the trick for me. Like, we want to hear why. And we're not going to necessarily rush out and build that thing tomorrow or even ever. I mean, as James was saying, in order to have a cohesive development tool, you kind of, you have to say no sometimes. Right. But the more that we can get feedback from our customers, the more we can kind of see the patterns, see what people are asking for. And I just want to pimp one thing here. If you are an Atlassian customer or evaluator and you, you find something missing or something that doesn't sparkle for you, you can go to jira.atlassian.com. That's our public-facing Jira instance. File a bug report. File a, an enhancement request. File a user story. James and the other product managers, honest to God, they go through and look at this regularly. I look at it every day and respond to customers every day. <laughs> well, and then you so. said, the developers on the product, every few releases, they get to look at it too. Yeah. They get to play PM. Exactly. So that's, I mean, that's a hugely important communication mechanism for us. Yeah, and the, the main reason I wanted to bring that up is because that was a very interesting conversation because you were very forward about, I, I like the feedback. And then when we tried to get into the details, it's like, that's a feeling I have that I can't actually back up with any data. And then we all laughed about it. And we've, James, you and I have had conversations on Twitter as well. That's another forum to discuss a lot of these things as well. You talk issues and success stories uh, there as well. Yeah, it's true. We like to engage on the tweets. I have to say I love both of your Twitter names. Sarah, your Twitter name is DevToolSuperfan, which I think is great. And then uh, for the the nerd in me, James, you're at i386 on Twitter. So uh, you can always... I think always... has the better Twitter handle because his is only four characters and I was stupid enough to choose one that's like 20 characters long. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah James, it was a great conversation. It was, it was great uh, having you uh, here to discuss kind of the stuff you're doing. And uh, and we were talking about this, doing a Jenkins versus Bamboo cage match uh, next year. <laughs> that would be, that'd so... be a lot of fun to, to compare notes. Yeah. I'm so down. <laughs> great. All right. Well, thanks for joining us and uh, have a ha- happy holidays. Thanks, you too. Thanks, man. And we'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So for our end segment, uh, right before Thanksgiving, now we got a tooltip in store for you. I'm going to be talking about PyCharm 3, the community edition. Uh, actually, Yusuf brought this up to us. It looks like JetBrains recently released PyCharm 3.0 to the community, so you can get a uh, version there. And Yusuf played with this a little bit. Tell us about yeah, PyCharm. Yeah, so I, I do a little bit of Python development on my spare time, and uh, I used to use PyDev, the PyDev plugin, on top of Eclipse, but mm-hmm. I got really tired of it, so I somebody had told me about uh, PyCharm. That's not what you said when we were prepping this. You said Eclipse sucks I did say that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, here you go. Keep that. me honest. Keep so, me honest. So, okay, okay. So, so in, in the interest of keeping me honest, it, I, I will say that with for Python development, it sucks 
So, um, <laughs> or, or PyDev specifically. So anyhow, I, I switched over to PyCharm. It's great. It's a great tool. A lot of the key bindings that you find with uh, with Eclipse are, are still there, and you know it's got all the standard uh, features, the autocomplete, all the um, all the good stuff that you get in a in a nice uh, modern IDE, and it also. You can import GitHub projects straight from a GitHub URL, and it's got a whole bunch of nice features. They also have, I think, a professional edition. I played around. They've got, like, a 30-day demo. Um, I didn't really find too much of a difference between that and the community edition. But, yeah, for my Python development, uh, I'm going to be sticking with PyCharm for the time being. Nice. Um, yeah, and uh, you look... No, no offense to, to the PyDev and Slash Eclipse developers. I just I, I got tired of having to wrangle with stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll have to give this a try because it's funny. Uh, I, I don't have enough Eclipse experience to hate it with a passion that some people do. However, I've never heard I've never heard anyone say, oh, Eclipse, I, I love it. Like people suffer through it to do Android development and Java development and Python development, but and I can't even tell you why that is, but I've just Ooh. never it's I I've never heard anybody go, oh, the best thing ever. Uh, I have heard people say it's the best of a not very good group in terms of if you have to do that type of development. There's not a lot cross-platform IDE, so I can understand that. It's a hard problem, but yeah, no. So on that note about Android development, I know that the the new Google, I don't know what they're calling it, Android IDE is actually based off of the um, IntelliJ IDE, which is also written by JetBrains. So I haven't personally used it, but I really like PyCharm, so. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nice to uh, you can grab the uh, the community edition, see if you like it, uh, and then it looks like the professional edition is only a hundred bucks uh, for individual developers, uh, which is kind of nice. And academic license is like academic license is super cheap; it's twenty nine bucks, and open source project license is free for the yep. professional edition. Nice. Yes. Well, uh, thank you for that tooltip. That's a good one. Quick announcement, uh, OpsCode has announced ChefConf 2014. Call for presenters is now open. Uh, we'll put links to both of those in the uh, the show notes. Looks like it's happening April 15th through the 17th in San Francisco. So uh, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed wishing you a happy Thanksgiving here in the States and signing off. E.J. Saramella from North Massachusetts. Uh, don't overeat. Signing off. <laughs> uh, this is Yusuf from uh, San Diego. Also wishing you a, uh, an awesome Thanksgiving. Um, signing off. And we'll see you all uh, after the leftovers are finished.